Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. The Visalia ransacking crime spree started as a series of break-ins and burglaries in 1974, escalated to the murder of Claude Snelling on September 11, 1975, and culminated with the shooting of Officer William McGowan on December 10th of that same year. Now, the theory that the Visalia ransacker was part of the Golden State Killer's numerous violent crimes was initially just that. A theory. Some folks in law enforcement believed the ransacker to be connected, and some did not. Until the identification and arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo as the suspected Golden State Killer. And among his list of charged crimes is the murder of Claude Snelling. So, to talk about why law enforcement now believes the ransacker is, in fact, the early incarnation of the Golden State Killer is someone who publicly changed his opinion on the matter, retired Contra Costa County Chief Investigator Paul Holes. Welcome back, sir. Hi, guys. How's it going? Good. So, yeah, you were probably the most vocal within the Golden State Killer task force that the ransacker series was not connected. You know, going back in time, what was kind of your main driving uh, opinion on that? You know, as I was assessing that, the thing that stood out the most to me is the Visalia Ransacker was, you know, physically described as heavy, rounded shoulders, you know, thick through the hips, thick through the thighs, short, fat fingers. And the very early East Area Rapist attacks, the victims who actually saw the East Area Rapist from head to toe and you saw his entire uh, physique described him as slim and athletic, you know, and very different. And so I, I looked at that going, God, that, that really sounds like two different body types, more so than somebody who just had lost weight. But also, the Visalia ransacker really wasn't very good as a burglar. Um, <laughs> he was seen by multiple people. He struggled sometimes to break into houses when if they didn't have the open window or open door, he, you see pry marks in multiple locations around the house as he's struggling to get his, you know, make his way into the house. And the East Area Rapist, I mean, he became a ghost. I mean, this was where some people even thought the East Area Rapist had some sort of special ops training because he was so good at moving around and using the shadows where people never saw him. Or he was tactically sound, approaching from one direction and leaving from a different direction. So I started to see this dichotomy between the ransacker and the East Area Rapist. I'm going, this sounds like two different offenders. Now, I never said they were not the same. Right. I, I just said, I don't think they're the same. And that's, that's an important thing. And so what I did is I focused my energies on the East Area Rapist because I knew 
that was the guy that ultimately blossomed into the Golden State Killer who ended up down in Southern California killing people. Right. And so it's really more also at the time, just there's so many avenues to go down. So, you know, you you pick the the road that you think will be most successful. But I think also it should be acknowledged that there were a lot of other burglars and rapists and fetish uh, burglars active in the Sacramento area at the time of the East Area Rapist. And you ran into a few of them as well that overlap but didn't turn out to be to ear. Can you expand on that? Well, you know, Sacramento, you know, as was in, in other areas in California back in the 1970s, was just a hotbed for serial predators. And I know very early on when the East Area Rapist was attacking Sacramento was already investigating multiple other serial rapists, uh, the early bird rapists, the, the woolly rapists, et cetera, as well as serial killers, such as, uh, you know, Richard Trenton Chase, who was active uh, during that time as well. So those investigators were having to deal uh, with multiple crimes occurring at the same time the East Area Rapist was. So early on, his series kind of got buried until... I believe it was Dick Shelby. Richard Shelby was the one who said, God, this looks like we have another guy, you know, that's different than these other ones. You know, I know when I was investigating some of the early Sacramento cases, there was one case in particular that was on the official East Area Rapist list that had been taken off. And I kept hitting up Sacramento SO saying, what is going on here? And ultimately, I tracked down that victim and talked to her just a couple of years ago. And she told me, well, her case had been solved. And it was a teenage boy in the area. And then I ultimately went to, it turned out, it, you know, it was a guy that uh, ended up dying, but he had been a sex registrant for Roseville PD. And I went and looked at his file. And in his file were the original police reports. And for that particular attack that I was looking at, this teenage boy basically told law enforcement, I was trying to copy the East Area Rapist. And he did wow. a pretty good job. You know, so that was, you know, part of the concern is, is well, how, what other cases are out there that, uh, you know, maybe somebody has copied, uh, you know, and, and we've put him on the official list, or you have cases that the East Era Rapist has committed, but they were different enough that they never made the official list because back in the day, they could only rely on MO. They weren't an, an offender description. They didn't have DNA in order to help link cases together. Right. And the East Area Rapist never left a fingerprint. So that also didn't help them. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also important to note that at the time in the 70s, Visalia PD did come up to Sacramento and talk to local Sacramento PD and sheriffs at the time. And even they were like, we don't know if these are related. Like this is, you know, we've got our hands full with the guy that we know we for sure have to chase. We can't also take on the ransacker. Right. And, and we ran in, you know, in terms of, you, you had SAC and, and by Staley investigators kind of disagreeing with it, each other about if they're related or not. And it was the same thing with the, the current task forces. You know, I was the one that was the most skeptical about them being related. And then other investigators were absolutely sure they were related. You know, and it, in many ways it was a coin flip. You know, I just happened to choose tails and it turned out it was heads. Right. But I think, you know, talking about the different looks now that Joseph James Angelo has been identified as the uh, suspected Golden State killer with the ransacker and the East Area Rapist sprees as part of that, you look at his Exeter police picture and you're like, OK, I can kind of see the the chubbier, heavier, thicker thighs and, and all of that. And then you look at the famous, quote unquote, Auburn, you know, paper fuzzball picture yep. and he looks tiny and skinny. Yes. 
Yes. And it shows that he changed his physical appearance between the Visalia Ransacker series and the East Area Rapist. And in my mind, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, this, this as a very sophisticated individual. He knew he had been seen a bunch of times down in Visalia. He probably saw that composite of the Visalia Ransacker and was like, oh, that looks like me. And so when he got out of Dodge and moved up to Auburn PD, not only was he putting that geographic distance between him and Visalia, he was also changing his physical appearance in order to be able to not look like the Visalia Ransacker. And he changed his MO. He learned. He got better. So in my mind, I look back at the series now knowing D'Angelo is, is the Golden State Killer and the Visalia Ransacker in East Area Rapist, I think D'Angelo used Visalia. That was his learning grounds. And he corrected his mistakes from Visalia and implemented those corrections as the East Area Rapist once he escalates to the rapes. Can you sum up the reasons you believe now that the Ransacker series is in fact part of the Golden State Killer crime spree? At this point, it's all circumstantial. You know, when you look at uh, Joseph D'Angelo, when he's down there as an Exeter police officer, that's when Visalia Ransacker series is starting. The Visalia Ransacker series, uh, many of those burglaries are clustered around the College of the Sequoias where D'Angelo attended the police academy. So it's very much a familiar area to him. Uh, We have D'Angelo purchasing a gun down there in, uh, in that area at the time of the Visalia Ransacker series going on. And the physical appearance of D'Angelo, as he looked as an Exeter police officer, entirely matches the physical appearance of the Visalia Ransacker. So those circumstantial aspects start really adding up in my mind. And then when you start looking at the behavioral characteristics of Ransacker versus the East Area Rapist, you know, there is overlap. And I had always acknowledged there's behavioral overlap. I just didn't think it was distinct enough in the behavioral overlap to say they're one and the same offender. But there is behavioral overlap. So it just became very obvious early on once we started looking at D'Angelo that uh, the Visalia Ransacker was sort of the, the, the beginnings of this whole series. Got it. Now, what were your thoughts when you heard that Tulare County DA was officially charging D'Angelo with the only ransacker crime that hadn't passed the statute of limitations, which was the murder of Claude Snelling? Well, I thought that was, you know, that was great because I do believe that he is the one that, that shot Claude Snelling. I'm kind of curious to know what kinds of evidence that they were able to maybe utilize Right now, all I know is a circumstantial connection, and I'm curious to find out if they were able to maybe pull some DNA from their case, from the Claude Snelling case, to show it's D'Angelo or something else, which I don't have any inside information on. And uh, that's just where I've separated from the active investigation, and I won't know until you guys know, basically. But they do have a decent circumstantial case because of the Pat Mono gun, right? I mean, the gun that was used to kill Claude Snelling was stolen from a known ransacker crime scene. So at least with that gun, they can connect the murder to the ransacker. And then it's really then circumstantially setting up the ransacker cases. 
Well, yeah, you know, that is a, an interesting aspect of, from an evidence standpoint, whether or not that circumstance would ever be admitted into the, uh, you know, the murder trial of Claude Snelling. Uh, that, I think there'd be arguments from the defense as to relevancy along those lines, you know, and in many ways, the Claude Snelling homicide stands alone. You don't have to prove the killer of Claude Snelling is the Visalia ransacker. True. Well, look, what makes you such a great investigator is always being open to changing your mind when new evidence comes to light. And all credit to you. As soon as we talked on April 25th, 2018, you said the Golden State Killer is the ransacker. Going back and forth with you on this uh, has been great. Now we'll have to find something else to debate about. So um, (laughs) thanks again for being here. Thank you, Paul. No, my pleasure again. Thank you, guys. Coming up next, Sun Gazette owner and publisher Reggie Ellis and editor-in-chief Paul Myers return to share what they've uncovered about the Visalia ransackings and why they, too, believe that the ransacker and the Golden State Killer are one and the same. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Reggie Ellis and Paul Myers from the Sun Gazette in Exeter, California, join us again to share some of what they've uncovered about the Visalia ransackings in their paper's archives. Welcome back, guys. Now, you didn't actually find much mention of the ransacker in your archives. Why do you suppose that is? Yeah, so, um, you know, the Visalia Ransacker had always been kind of a topic of conversation in the area, but not necessarily in Exeter, where we're based out of, because Exeter and Visalia might as well have been in two different counties in, you know, in the 70s, uh, even though there's not, there's only, you know, 17 miles between them. Um, back then, that that's a significant drive. Um, and there wasn't a lot of uh, kind of cross communication going on between the two communities. So, and to that, I think that just really speaks about how involved he was in keeping up with how the investigation on the Visalia ransacker was going. He must have been aware that this was a very much hot button topic in Visalia. Well, and being on the burglary task force, he probably would have had conversations with Visalia officers in passing um, about, you know, techniques or what they're doing or what they're working on. He, he did have access to other officers and investigators at other agencies. We don't know how often he was running into those people, but I'm, I can't imagine he wouldn't have used that opportunity to, you know, glean some information from those conversations. And just to build on that, I'm positive that there is a type of duper's delight that he had talking with other officers in Visalia who are kind of commiserating over, you know, oh, we were so close to catching him this time or, you know, oh, he just he just struck again. And it was, you know, it, it was right down the street from where I was patrolling. So I'm sure that there was a level of enjoyment knowing that he was getting the better of the Visalia Police Department. But then January 76, this Visalia ransacker composite gets released after the McGowan shooting that um, Officer Bill McGowan you know, help create. And when we look at 
Joseph D'Angelo's Exeter police picture. It's an awful close match. <laughs> it's really close. <laughs> Very close. <laughs> so much composite. closer than the, than the East Area Rapist composite. Oh, a hundred percent. And so, so the thing is, is that composite is obviously published in the Visalia Times Delta, the, Vi- the Visalia newspaper, but it never made its way to Exeter. We've talked about how the communities were so separated. But now when you have a Visalia police patrol chief coming in to become a, your chief of police, and he's been staring at that composite for the last five months. I mean, that's gotta, that's gotta also be a little scary. Yeah, I, I know one thing uh, it's hard to think about, you know, in in the digital age and in the information age we live in, where you can just kind of pull up photos of people all the time anywhere. You really do have to kind of take a step back in time and say, like, people in Exeter probably never saw this composite of this person. Because he, even back then, and it's true today, we don't have a local television station where we have radio and TV that comes down from Fresno to cover events. So basically, the composite disappears with the, with the next day's newspaper. Exactly, and so that it's out there, and then it's gone. And in the you know in Visalia, I'm sure it's ingrained in everyone's memory. And in other towns, they're like, yeah, I heard about it. I guess I don't know. Well, but I think you make a good point because I, if I'm just a Visalia resident, I'm probably not hanging it up in my kitchen and staring at that composite every day. And like you said, if I throw out the newspaper, I don't really have a chance at seeing it again. It's just that the police department probably had it up in their offices. So, Oh, absolutely. You have that chief of police coming in. And then I think probably also the idea that, you know, maybe some of his buddies like Officer McGowan might stop by to come and say hi and check out the chief's new job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and the McGowans were a law enforcement family. There was also, uh, I, I believe, the McGowans had a brother who worked for the sheriff's department. So there is some talking kind of out of the public eye that goes on between uh, officers in different jurisdictions at that time. I mean, it's much more formalized now, but um, at that time you would have had chatter, you know, like you, like Paul said, kind of people commiserating about their jobs or just talking about, you know, Hey, we started doing this new thing. You guys might want to try this, bring it up to your chief or something. But yeah, you got to think too, is that like, I don't think that the line of communication between you know, officers and patrol or like, you know, management patrolmen was necessarily that great. But I but it's not as if they had email, you know, whenever you get this mass email from chief saying like, hey, if you see this guy with this mugshot and you can pull it up on your smartphone whenever you think that you see somebody like none of those tools were available. So you really had nothing but memory to go off of. So let's say let's say you see the composite and let's say you see D'Angelo within a 12 hour period. Are you really that sure? You know, that it's the same guy. He's a police officer. So it, it probably can't be, you know. I, I think that's the thing, right? Because you, you have a preconceived notion that a police officer could never do this. So you're not even thinking about that composite probably when you see D'Angelo. That's exactly right. And it's even a preconceived notion among other officers. The officers are even saying, and, I mean, not saying, but they're, they would have said if you asked them, like, well, could this be someone in law enforcement? Even they would have said, like, oh, there's just no way. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> it's never happened. Right. Well, Reggie Ellis, Paul Myers from the Sun Gazette, thank you for coming back to share what you've uncovered about the Visalia ransackings as it relates to suspect Joseph James D'Angelo. And coming up... Todd Lindsay, our partner in the Unmasking a Killer documentary series, always believed that the Visalia Ransacker and the Golden State Killer were the same person. He explains why next. We have with us our partner in crime, Todd Lindsay. 
Thanks for having me back, guys. Hey, uh, thanks for bringing us the project in the first place. It's been an amazing journey. It has. It really has. So I remember when you first came and told us about this project, the Eron's project, East Area Rapist. That was the nickname. Original that, Night Soccer. That never really got off the ground. Really, really horrible no, branding. Bad branding. <laughs> yeah. um, but I remember even in that first meeting, you saying, I believe the Visalia Rand Soccer is connected. Right. What made you believe it so much way back when? Well, it seemed when you look at the ransacker cases, it's like the perfect escalation in crimes. You know, he starts with these uh, fetish burglaries, uh, then proceeds to the home invasion rapes and then the home invasion murders. So it seemed to fit perfectly in the crime sprays. And, you know, I was always the big thing is when the ransacking stop six months later, the rapes start in Sacramento. So it seemed uh, like, you know, logically that the man had moved from Visalia area to the Sacramento area. And, um, yeah, I was just uh, convinced from early on that um had to be the same guy. So, yeah, as we were, you know, going through our show, Visalia was still a theory. This ransacking spree was by some believed to be connected. But with the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo... It became more than a theory. And with the official indictment of Joseph James D'Angelo with the homicide charge of Claude Snelling, it really is law enforcement sending the signal to everybody that they say now the Visalia ransacker absolutely in their mind is the East Area Rapist, is the original Night Stalker, and then the Golden State Killer. So Todd, back us up a little bit. You have the ransacker. He's out doing all these burglaries. How do we go from that to a murder? Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, He clearly is getting a little bit bolder with his break-ins as the series goes on. And we know the same night that Claude Snelling is murdered, the ransacker broke into another home nearby uh, that was occupied. And the homeowner woke up and chased him out, um, I believe, with a shotgun. And the ransacker had to leave so quickly, he left behind his bicycle in the guy's front yard. Bicycle was stolen, so they couldn't trace that to him. So it, I get the feeling, and I know you share this, he's frustrated at that point, And he decides to go to one of his favorite prowling targets, which is the Snelling home. He's clearly uh, infatuated with the Snelling daughter at that point. Because there were two previous reports of him being there. At least two, yeah. Uh, We know that the professor chased off a prowler. And the professor being Claude Snelling. Claude Snelling. Chased off a prowler at some point uh, a few weeks before his murder. And then there's another story about uh, Beth going to the window and pulling open the blinds. And there's a guy... Unmasked, I believe, hmm. staring at her, and he runs off. So there's there's at least two instances that we know of, and he seems to be obsessed with that. So he manages to get in the house that night. And, you know, I, I know you have a theory also, Joke, why he's there, but um, he could have been there maybe just to spy on them. You know, it's a, it's another step up in his escalation. Now he's in the house with the people sleeping. So I'm sure that's a level of excitement for him also. Because the earlier ransacker crimes were pretty much when no one was home. When when no one was home. I mean, I can't find one where they were home uh, while the ransacker was there until that night, you know, the first break in. So, and we see this in the entire series. He decides to step up his actions 
you know, little by little. And so now he's broken into a home where uh, the family's asleep. He goes into Beth's room and, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Did he, did he wake her up on purpose? Did he wake her up on accident? And if it's an accident, he just decides he's going to go with it and pull her out of the house. And I'm assuming for to sexually assault her. Or to get out, because he knows if he leaves her right there, she screams and he might not have time to get away. Yeah, although now you're dragging a kidnap victim with you. So I don't know how quickly you can escape with somebody who doesn't want to go with you. It seems if your only uh, wish is to get out of that house and get away quickly... You just leave her there and you run. Right. So it seems like he's decided to up the ante and kidnap this young lady. And, of course, the dad wakes up and um, but no shot. Room. There didn't seem to be a lot of um, planning on the ransacker's part. to If he takes her to sexually assault her, he, it's not like he had a vehicle there. Was he going to do it in the front yard? Well, that's you know, always it, been a mystery. Where exactly. was he taking her? And yeah, there was no apparent destination. He was he's running out with her, and, and then what? Well, I spoke to James Cummings, and he's you know the uh, detective down in Visalia, and you know he agreed with me that was always a big question mark. Where was he going to take Beth? Right. He could have had a car on the other block. Right. We don't know. And if we're going with the assumption that it's uh, D'Angelo. You know, he doesn't live too far away. Maybe he's going to take her to the car and and drive to his house, although we know he lived there with other people. So, yeah, so it's uh, we may never know where he planned to take her. We just know that uh, he showed a lot of anger towards Claude Snelling to wait in the backyard. You know, he could have left Beth in the backyard even when he hears Claude Snelling yelling, you know, at him and 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 coming down the stairs and ran away. But he sits there and waits for a handful of seconds until Claude comes out the back door and fires twice at him. Uh, doesn't fire to scare him. He fires twice in the chest. It sounds like he wanted to kill him. Right. Again, it's so weird that he would be that angry over being chased away. Um, well, the same can be said with the majorities yeah. at the East Area Rapist crime spree. You yeah. know, he's being confronted there. He probably could have gotten away. We know the East Area Rapist can get away, jumping fences, running fast. Very athletic, uh, can very run athletic. very quickly. And, and yet in that instant, he says, no, I'm going to kill these people. Right. So, I mean, in the majority case, I feel like they got a good look at him without the mask. And uh, he had already gone through that once with mm-hmm. the shooting of uh, McGowan. And he came close to being recognized because obviously the composite was very close to him. So maybe he decides, I'm not going to do that again. Right. And he murders the couple so they can't give an eyewitness description of him. I mean, I, I believe that's how that probably went down. So now back to Visalia, I think it's important to understand why law enforcement feels comfortable charging with the Claude Snelling homicide. One as far as we know and everything that we've been told, there is no DNA in that case. Yes. There, there was no DNA left behind. So, you know, we knew that back when it happened and in all the years since there, there was no physical evidence that way. But what was discovered at the time was that Claude Snelling was killed with a weapon, a gun that had been stolen from Pat Mano's house, who we interviewed for the show. Mm-hmm. And that ransacking where that gun was stolen fits the MO of the ransacker perfectly. It really does. It kind of foreshadows a lot of the activity that the Golden State Killer will use in his future crimes. Pat Mono got a threatening phone call, which is, you know, right along with the Golden State Killer. Par for the course, yeah. yeah. 
and again, the like you said, the actions in Pat Mono's house, besides stealing the gun, you know, he went through his young daughter's room, Pat Mono's daughter's room, and took costume jewelry and some photos of her. I think one was in a bathing suit. So we know that Pat Mono was a victim of the Visalia Ransacker. Right. And then we know that Pat Mono's gun was used to murder Claude Snelling. So, so I think what they have to prove is that D'Angelo was the ransacker. Which brings us to, you have the ransacker connected to Snelling, and the ransacker then also is very much connected to the attempted homicide of Officer McGowan. Right. Where Officer McGowan, in December of 1975, confronts the ransacker. And we know that to be the ransacker because it was the exact MO of what he was doing and where he was traveling, Mm -hmm. and is shot at. So the ransacker escapes. But McGowan is able to make a composite, which at the time and for years, people were like, eh, who knows who this is? Well, there was another suspect for many, many years that people thought that must have been the guy that McGowan cornered that night, who was chubby, had a high pitched voice. Some described him as being special needs in appearance. And there was a guy like that who lived in Visalia and I think had been caught peeping in somebody's window. So a lot of people thought maybe that's who McGowan cornered, but that wasn't the ransacker. But I think now we know it was always the ransacker. And that uh, composite looks almost dead on to D'Angelo at that time. Exactly. And I think that's ultimately where, you know, you have the movement pattern of Joseph D'Angelo living in Visalia, in Exeter, being part of the Exeter Police Department during the ransackings, and then leaving that and moving up to the Sacramento area, Auburn in particular, you have that composite, and then you have the gun that was stolen from a ransacking that killed Claude Snelling, and you see why law enforcement feels comfortable charging the homicide charge of Claude Snelling to Joseph James D'Angelo. Exactly. But I think we should also, now that we're talking about Joseph James D'Angelo, and again, it should be said that he is awaiting trial. He has not entered a plea. Uh, he's innocent until proven guilty. And especially in these crimes where there is no DNA, it's it's hard to say for 100% sure on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, now, law enforcement believes he is the man and he is the ransacker. So in looking at what Joseph D'Angelo was doing during his time in Visalia, It's quite interesting. We know he went to a police academy at the College of the Sequoias. Right. And we always wondered, did he run into Claude Snelling or was that just a coincidence? Claude Snelling, who was a professor at the College of the Sequoias. But I think even more interesting is that most of the ransackings, I would say all of the ransackings, are really in the area surrounding the College of the Sequoias. They really are. We mentioned Mount Whitney High School and the College of Sequoias. They're really... Those two schools are very close together, and all the break-ins are within that area. They're very focused. You know, the ransacker obviously felt comfortable in that neighborhood. And I think it's also interesting looking at the ransacking burglaries. You know, they're fetish burglaries, but oftentimes they've been referred to as somewhat sophisticated. I mean, he had little burglar alarms he would put on himself, whether it was a little perfume bottle on the doorknob on the front door in case the owners came home early, he would get a warning. He'd always leave a window open or some other At least one window and a door. So he'd have multiple. Very specific, very specific. Multiple escape routes uh, if somebody comes in the front door. So like you mentioned uh, the perfume bottle on the doorknob. So if somebody turns the 
doorknob, the bottle breaks. Now he's got two avenues of escape. So he takes the one that uh, he's closest to at that time. Clearly does not want to be caught and is really thinking these through in an almost military way. And in a way, it's it's more sophisticated than, oh, it's just a high school kid rummaging through girls' underwear drawers. But then it looks like a high school kid rummaging right. through. I mean, you have somebody going through the kitchens and, and spraying ketchup all over the kitchen and, and mayonnaise and dumping stuff out on the floor. And then, like you said, uh, taking underwear and throwing it around or leaving it in a trail down the hallway. In Pat Mono's case, that was his underwear that was left in a trail down the hallway. Things that you would think must be a high school kid or or somebody maybe just out of high school, you would think very young. And I think he does that on purpose to throw people off, to throw the investigators off. They're looking for somebody who's 10 years younger than right. than D'Angelo at the time. And again, if we're looking at D'Angelo during that time, we now know, as reported in the Exeter Sun, he is being trained in anti-burglary techniques. Yes, <laughs> He's literally being paid by taxpayer money to get better at being a criminal. Right. At, at breaking into homes. So he's learning uh, the, the latest security options for people to put in their homes. And he's learning how burglars defeat those options. So he's learning how to break into a house. And to your point, he's probably learning, you know, how to identify the kind of burglar, right? So it's like, this looks like a high school kid. This looks like a, you know, a grown man. This looks like someone looking for a TV. And so he, if D'Angelo is in fact a ransacker, that knowledge could help him throw the scent, so to speak. And I think he does that exactly. Uh, He makes it look like uh, a high school kid who's just... Breaking into somebody's home and taking cheap stuff because he doesn't know any better, you know, and messing up the house because it's fun. But like you said, there's an underlying current there where it's a lot darker than that, uh, that this is a fetish burglary. And there are several clues that he can't hide that point to that. Right. I think, you know, going back to the theory for a second, the idea was that after the Officer McGowan encounter where it was really close to being caught and then that composite comes out, that he flees the area, that the ransacker leaves the area and moves up to Sacramento, has a couple months there to get familiar and then starts attacking in June of 1976 as the East Area Rapist. Mm -hmm. However, now that we're looking at Joseph James D'Angelo as the accused Vizelli ransacker and East Area Rapist, we know he actually was still part of the Exeter Police Department well through the first half of 76. In fact, in May of 76, it makes the paper that, you know, he's getting his funds renewed to be part of this anti-burglary task force. Right. He's promoted, I believe, in April to sergeant. So so he actually stayed put, which brings me to this question. Right. With the composite being as close of a match to his Exeter PD photograph, how come nobody put that together? Well, uh, as you well know, um, there's a couple reasons, I think. Uh, one that doesn't get talked about a lot is I think in the early 70s, early to mid 70s, people aren't going to suspect a police officer. Okay. Uh, you know, that's something from the movies. It's not real life. Uh, I think especially back then coming out of the, you know, you're only um, a decade removed from the 50s where, you know, the police were revered as upstanding citizens and well, I think even like the Exeter Sun guys referred to Exeter kind of as like Mayberry, right? right. So you're not going to think Andy Griffith is out, you know, <laughs> prowling right, two right. towns over. I mean, it just doesn't come up. And then I think uh, another reason is 
the lack of uh, sharing of the news between Visalia and Exeter. Uh, it's big news in Visalia. It's not really big news in Exeter. I think that was really fascinating to me because, as we mentioned, they're very close yeah, to each other, so the cities. Close. And yet none of the ransackings made it into the Exeter paper. The Claude Snelling murder didn't make it into the paper. The the composite didn't make it into the paper. So really, the only people in Exeter who would have seen a composite would have been, you know, a few of his co-workers. And again, it was a small department. Yeah. I, I wonder if the Visalia paper or or the Exeter paper at the time doesn't include all of that because they think that people in Exeter will probably read the Visalia paper also. Hmm. But yes, either way, it's not big news in Exeter. So the cops would have had that composite and they would have known Visalia is looking for a man that looks like this. But again, you're not going to suspect one of your officers. Right. I mean, it's just that's a crazy story. I, you know, if I could have spoken with um, Sergeant McGowan before he passed and told him, you're looking for a fellow officer from Exeter, he he probably wouldn't have believed me. Because I'm sure if he had any inkling that it was somebody that he might have been in contact with previously, he would have spoken up. He clearly did not ever suspect D'Angelo, and we're not sure if he ever met D'Angelo. Right. We we don't know that. Yeah. But it, we know that if he had any suspicion that it was an officer of the law, he would have spoken up because he looked for this guy for decades right. after the shooting. I think it's also very interesting because at the time, Sergeant Vaughn, and I, I believe McGowan and some other people from Visalia made a trip to Sacramento once the East Area Rapists started attacking there. Probably closer to 77, you know, after the East Area Rapists had made the news, obviously. Right. And yet in Sacramento, they were like, Nah, this can't be related. I mean, in, in Sacramento's defense, yes, they, they seem to quash that idea very quickly because it's in the paper that the Visalia PD are going up to Sacramento to exchange information. And the sheriff's department up there came out, I think, the next day or a couple of days later and said, we don't believe in a connection. I think uh, mainly the composites don't look alike. So they look like you're dealing with two different people. And again, he's a burglar for the most part and a murderer in Visalia. Uh, he goes straight to home invasion rapes, which is, you know, a lot more serious than a, a fetish burglary. So I think back then they just weren't aware of how these types of criminals would escalate their behavior. The word serial killer was not uh, used back then. You know, Ted Bundy is still out and about. I think he was arrested in 74. So, you know, he's kind of the first guy that, that really caught the public's imagination. So they're not used to this behavior. We have all this knowledge yeah. because we've read, you know, for decades now on, on people like this. So we have all that to fall back on. And the people at that time, and especially in law enforcement, did not have that base of knowledge. So they they just didn't think that they were connected. That seemed to be something from Hollywood. But, so And now we know better. Yeah, the idea of profiling and escalating behavior, yeah. it's not something that... That was very new yeah. Uh, yeah. in 75. And it's also, it's, it's, you have to remember, this is long before the internet, long before it's so easy to share information. Like today, we, if a photo of somebody pops up, everybody sees it. It's it shared viral. so fast. Yeah, yeah this, was, this was not the case. And it, it seems so foreign to those of us who are used to today's world. But it's not really a surprise that nobody really knew or saw his photo or remembered. I think that's a good point, because I think the Exeter Sun guys brought that up as well, where, you know, now if we're like, oh, what did that composite look like? We could just 
Google it up, right? right we could just right. look it up on our phone, and we have a device right handy. But if you didn't have a physical copy back then, how? You yeah. Know, and you and once it was it. in the paper, you know, then that paper got used to, you know, right. fill the birdcage. You know, like I mean, you don't necessarily hold on to it or hang things up on the wall. You know, communities were really insulated back then. It's amazing. Like we just mentioned, Visalia and Exeter didn't really know a lot about uh, what was going on in each other's towns. And then uh, Sacramento had, probably had no idea, had never heard of the Visalia Ransacker. And talking to uh, Larry Crompton, the former, the retired detective from Contra Costa County, he said when the rape started in Contra Costa County, they had never heard of the East Area Rapist. So, I mean, they're not far from Sacramento, and right. they were unaware of it. So, yeah, there's a. Uh, it's amazing how much the Internet and just modern technology has uh, brought us together information-wise, and it just wasn't the case back then. Well, I just want to say um, I'm very glad that uh, you and us were proven to be right because we walked into CNN and said, we believe the ransacker right. is connected. Right. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and now there's an official charge with part of the Golden State Killer crime spree that the Claude Snelling and therefore the Visalia Ransacker is connected. So it's nice um, to be right, isn't it? <laughs> and when you go out on a limb like that, too, because right. uh, there is there was some evidence that they weren't connected. I mentioned the other suspect um, and there were a few other things, but most of it, I thought, pointed to the connection. So, Well, wasn't it in 2012, the FBI had done a new profile and the profiler had mentioned the ransacker could be connected. And at that point, money was spent on looking at every ransacker suspect and getting them DNA tested, including the person that you mentioned right. that was considered like the prime Visalia ransacker suspect they could never prove. And all the ransacker suspects that were tested DNA were cleared for yep. the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker cases. And so it's interesting that with Joseph James D'Angelo being charged in this and his name never coming up in the East Area Rapist cases and never coming up in the original Night Stalker cases, his name also never appeared in the ransacking cases. He's never a suspect in any part of this crime series. Not one part. Right. Pretty incredible. Right. I mean, well, and that's what DNA does for you, right? I mean, pulls the suspect that nobody's ever come across before. Right. And we're seeing that in a lot of the cases being solved now. Uh, you know, most of these suspects were never on a list and they never would have been identified. And we know who to thank for using investigative genealogy to identify Joseph James D'Angelo, who's been arrested and charged in the case of the Golden State Killer. And that someone is Paul Holes. So coming up next week, an episode dedicated solely to the retired Contra Costa County chief investigator who devoted more than 20 years to the search and identification of the Golden State Killer. Paul returns to talk about his life in law enforcement, some of the other high-profile cases he's worked over the course of his career, and how a general interest in science led him down the forensic DNA path and nearly to the front door of Golden State Killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo. And for more on the Golden State Killer case, you can watch the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series On Demand with CNN Go. And the entire companion podcast series, including these new episodes, is also available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Biagio Messina. And I'm Joe Finciun. Thanks for listening. <laughs>